0: This is Christian Knutsen and Sarah Hopeful with your local news coming to you live from our homes via the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. The jury in the trial of Kyle Rittenhouse began deliberations today. After about 8 hours of considering the verdict, they have wrapped up their delir- delir- deliberations for the day. They begin again tomorrow morning. During today's discussions, members of the jury requested copies of the jury instructions. Kenosha News reports that Judge Bruce Schroeder did not put a time limit on jurors to deliberate for the day. The jury is to decide whether Rittenhouse was defending himself or acting as a vigilante when he shot three people and killed two during police protests in Kenosha last summer. We'll have more about the Rittenhouse trial later in the broadcast.
1: Governor Tony Evers announced today $6 million in grants for youth, domestic abuse, and homeless shelters. The grants were announced amidst Hunger and Homelessness Awareness Week. The grants will help provide individuals with short and long term housing during the winter months. Funded by the American Rescue Plan Act, the funding will be split into two programs. Four million dollars will go to the Department of Administration to provide funding to shelter facilities and two million dollars will go to the Department of Children and Families for similar programs.
0: Wisconsin legislators announced a bipartisan bill today to offer a middle ground on state marijuana laws. The Capital Times reports that under this bill, marijuana would remain illegal in the state but there would be reduced penalties for possessing small amounts. Written by both Republican and Democratic legislators, this proposal would reduce the penalty of possession of up to 14 grams of marijuana to $100. This bill is circulating for co-sponsorship in the next week. The Milwaukee County District Attorney's Office published a report earlier this year showing that Wisconsin has had an average of 15,485 marijuana-related arrests per year over the past decade.
1: Data released by the State Department of Public Instruction showed that 95% of Wisconsin's school districts have met, exceeded, or significantly exceeded expectations last year, According to the Wisconsin State Journal, the reports took into account four distinct areas, student achievement, academic growth, target group outcomes, and students being prepared for post-secondary education. Here in Dane County, almost all districts met the state's expectations, with Marshall School District falling slightly behind. Juana Key School District scored the highest in the county with a score of 80.3 out of 100.
0: The Madison Police Department released today an independent review of its actions during last year's protests. The demonstrations against the murder of George Floyd by a Minneapolis police officer saw Madison officers enforce a citywide curfew and use tear gas on protesters. The report was written by the Quatrone Center for the Fair Administration of Justice, and it examined closed caption video, police radio calls, and social media reports about the protests and the police's actions. The report outlined 69 recommendations for the police department to adopt, suggesting they take on a quote, less is more, unquote, approach. WORT will have a breakdown about the report later this
2: week.
1: A new interactive sculpture has been installed at James Madison Park. The temporary sculpture, titled To Hold You, is a participant-driven project that includes weaving reclaimed strips of fabric into an upright hammock wall. The opening ceremony for the sculpture is this Sunday from 3 to 5, where attendees will be encouraged to engage with the art, as well as a guided meditation. The sculpture will remain at James Madison Park until December twelfth.
0: The Goodman Community Center is asking for donations to help feed the families for Thanksgiving. The nonprofit has been distributing Thanksgiving baskets for 33 years and is looking to help over 4,000 families in Dane County this year. The Wisconsin State Journal reports that 4,400 families have already registered for a basket, which contains everything you need for a Thanksgiving dinner. Donations can be made at goodmancenter.org forward slash Thanksgiving or at the center itself at 149 Wabisa Street.
1: If you woke up to an unexpected ticket this morning, that's because alternate side parking has returned to Madison for the winter. The parking rules began last night and will run until March 15th of next year. These rules affect the entire city of Madison, except the designated snow emergency zone, which includes the downtown neighborhoods of Vilas, Atwood, Regent, and others. During a declared snow emergency, however, these neighborhoods must abide by the alternate side parking rules as well. Check cityofmadison.com to check if your neighborhood is affected. A reminder about the rules, starting at 1 a.m., you can only park on even-numbered sides of the street on even days and odd-numbered side streets on odd days. There's a $20 fine for violating the rules, even if there is no snow on the ground, and a $60 fine during a declared snow emergency. And now on to today's top stories.
0: Earlier today, students at Madison East High School unveiled a new food pantry available both to their classmates and members of the community. The pantry is a project of the Food Equity Club at the school. WORT producer Nate Wegge helped have, was there for the ribbon-cutting ceremony.
3: Outside the cafeteria at Madison East High School, in a bright yellow and purple shed, lies the school's newest student-run food pantry. It's the recent project of the school's Food Equity Club, which aims to help students struggling with food insecurity. The idea for the new pantry arose during the pandemic, when students were not able to use an existing pantry set up inside of East High School. Senior student Pearl Pincus helped develop the idea, basing the new pantry on other outdoor pantries around the city.
4: So over COVID, we talked a lot about alternative options for providing food pantries, because last year we weren't able to have students access the food pantry inside of the school while we were closed. and. We modeled this idea after Madison Community Fridges, who also has outdoor fridges and food pantries around the city, and I volunteer with them as well. So we really wanted a outdoor food pantry so that students will be able to access food outside of school hours and also community members will be able to access it as well.
3: The pantry itself was built by East High School student and Eagle Scout, Deegan Weedle. Weedle has worked with pantries in the past and saw an opportunity to build something important while earning his Eagle Scout status. Well, um, I was originally looking around the school for an Eagle Scout project, Um, and I got in touch with Mrs. White, who needed someone for her club, uh, Food for Thought at the time, Uh, needed someone to build a food pantry and I know I've worked with food drives before I know that they generally have difficulty getting attention so I thought that it would be a great opportunity. Weedle spent over 30 hours constructing the new pantry with his grandfather and scout troop. Students, teachers and organizations like Second Harvest donate the food. It's all a project of the school's Food Equity Club, formerly the Food for Thought Club, which attempts to alleviate food insecurity among fellow students. Pincus explains.
4: So the Food Equity Club is a club here at East High School and we work to increase food access for students of East High. Many students do not receive adequate food at home or in rough financial situations, so We just strive to make sure that food is available to everybody. So inside the school, we have an open pantry that students can access anytime. And we also have social workers that can provide food from second harvest to students. And we also run a snack program. So teachers are able to distribute snacks to students at the end of the day that they can take home with them and food equity club funds. Um, all of the food in the open pantry, the snack program, and now this new outdoor pantry. And we do that through writing grants and receiving both monetary and food donations.
3: In other news, the MMSD school board met last night to discuss recent behavioral incidents at East High, among them a large fight between students that resulted in students being pepper sprayed. That's in addition to recent protests over the district's handling of sexual assault and harassment issues. Superintendent Carlton Jenkins used the meeting to reaffirm last year's school board decision to take school resource officers out of Madison's four high schools. Jenkins says that he doesn't want SROs reinstated and praised the community for stepping up to support students.
2: As superintendent, I do not believe that resource officers in isolation in schools are going to make the difference. I think we have to change mindsets in our community. We have to work together. We cannot count anyone out. And looking at ways that we can remove some of the barriers, add supports in so that uh, students can feel really safe in their buildings, staff can feel safe. And let me just acknowledge the parents and the staff and the students. I hear you. And there are people who have felt this. All of us have felt this. As your superintendent, I feel it. Uh, Trauma is real. The residual effects of it, they're real. And we're going to work together, and we're going to make sure that not only um, at one district school, but all of our district schools are moving forward in a way that we all can feel really just great about what we're trying to do. And that's about being about teaching and learning, but you can't have teaching and learning at the highest level without the feeling of safety.
3: Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wegiehout.
0: It's now 6.16 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT.
1: For the last two weeks, the trial of Kyle Rittenhouse has confirmed just how messy the American justice system can be. Kristen Barbarisi is a reporter for CBS 15 News in Milwaukee and has been in Kenosha watching the trial unfold. To learn more about the proceedings, W R T producer Nate Weghout hopped on the phone with Barbarisi earlier today
3: for the last two weeks the eyes of the nation have been on kenosha wisconsin as the trial of kyle rittenhouse has continued to open the eyes of the american public to all of the messy ins and outs of the american justice system with me today is kristen barbessi reporter for cbs news in milwaukee kristen has been in the courtroom for the trial so far kristen thank you so much for joining me today
5: Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me.
3: Yeah, so just to start off here, so the trial has been going on for just about a little over two weeks now. What is Rittenhouse charged with, and can you give us a brief overview of both the prosecution's and defense's arguments?
5: Yeah, definitely. So uh, Kyle Rittenhouse is facing uh, five counts. He was originally facing seven, but throughout the trial we saw two of those counts dismissed. The two dismissed counts, one was a curfew violation and one was a possession of a gun charge, which uh, is a misdemeanor. So those were actually the two least significant charges. Um, What he's facing now is first-degree reckless homicide, first-degree recklessly endangering safety, um, two counts of that, first-degree intentional homicide, and attempted first-degree intentional homicide. So those are the five main charges that, that he faces, but the jury is allowed to consider Um, lesser charges on the first-degree intentional homicide and the attempted first-degree intentional homicide. So if they don't think he's guilty of that severe offense, there are a couple lesser uh, offenses that they can consider. As far as the arguments, the state is basically trying to paint Rittenhouse as an armed vigilante, and they're saying that he provoked this entire situation. They're saying before he shot that first man, he had pointed his gun at some, some other person, and Joseph Rosenbaum ran at him because of that. So they're saying Kyle Rittenhouse provoked the situation, Joseph Rosenbaum ran at him to maybe try and stop him, and that's when he killed Joseph Rosenbaum. They're also saying that then, after he shot Joseph Rosenbaum, the crowd perceived Rittenhouse to be an active shooter. And they're saying that's why the other two men that were shot, Anthony Huber and Gage Grosskreutz, ran at Rittenhouse thinking he was an active shooter, trying to tackle him, trying to stop him. That's the state's argument. Now, on the other side, the defense is painting Kyle Rittenhouse as a 17-year-old who went down there to defend property, offer medical services, and they're saying he was attacked and he had to defend himself, and he did what was necessary. They say that that first man, Joseph Rosenbaum, ran at him, had threatened him earlier in the night. Rittenhouse feared for his life, and so he shot him. They're saying that then Rittenhouse ran from the scene to turn himself into police But he was hit. He fell to the ground. And this crowd was closing in on him. They were going to steal his gun. Rittenhouse thought they were going to use it then to kill him. Gage Grosskreutz himself was armed. So Rittenhouse thought he was going to shoot him. And so, again, he acted in self-defense. That's what the defense's argument is.
3: So you mentioned uh, before that one of the uh, lesser charges is being dropped, the possession of a dangerous weapon for a person under 18. Can you explain to me why uh, that charge was dropped?
5: This is a charge that the defense has been trying to get dropped since before the trial started. Their initial motion to dismiss it was denied. They filed a motion for it to be reconsidered. Basically, their argument is that the gun itself was a legal gun. The barrel of this gun was long enough that it made it legal. And they're saying that If you look at hunting statutes, basically, a 17-year-old can be in a possession of a long rifle in that situation. And they're saying that there's no reason that statute can't apply. So the judge yesterday in court basically said, okay, to the state, let's get out a tape measure and measure the length of the gun. And the state said, well, we're not contesting that it's a short barrel shotgun or anything. And the judge said, okay, then charge dismissed basically find the defense's argument.
3: So there has been uh, a lot of criticism about this judge sort of on social media. Judge Bruce Schroeder, can you sort of break down for me what he is doing that is causing this criticism?
5: I think before the trial even started, there was a lot of uproar about the fact that he said in a a pretrial hearing that the people who were shot couldn't be referred to as victims. However, that is always Judge Schrader's rule. He never allows people to be referred to as victims because it can bias the jury into thinking, well, if they're victims, then this defendant victimized them and therefore is guilty. So this isn't specific to the Rittenhouse case. That's always his rule. And I think that's important to remember. Some other things that he's done that, that people have been you know, questioning, he's made some some remarks um, about Asian food, which upset a lot of people. He also yelled at the prosecutor a couple of times when he crossed the line. I think one thing that's important for people to remember is that a lot of these things that the judge is doing that maybe are raising eyebrows, they're done outside the presence of the jury. So the jury itself isn't really privy to kind of these antics that people are talking about and seeing some of the behaviors that people think are, are outrageous.
3: So uh, you sort of brought up a point there about the judge's demeanor and sort of process as well as just the trial in in itself. And you were saying this is ordinary for this judge. Is this in general how most trials are ran?
5: By this judge, yes. And and I think that from the get-go, Judge Schrader has tried to treat this case as if it was any other case in his courtroom, and he does things the same. He plays jeopardy with the jury pool while they're waiting and and those kinds of things. And I think he's done that to be consistent, to show that he's not treating this case differently. I think where it gets a little, you know, kind of the public outrage is this maybe isn't like any other case, right? This is probably the biggest case that Kenosha has ever had in this courthouse.
3: So you were saying this is basically... Uh, run-of-the-mill, uh, par for the course for Bruce Schroeder. Is this how other judges sort of act in, you know, sort of these sorts of trials?
5: You know, I've I've covered a lot of court cases throughout the state, and every judge has their own personality, mm-hmm. and there are people just like that. So I've seen, I've seen other judges that don't allow victims. I've seen judges who use the word victims themselves. You know, I think it just varies case-to-case, case, and uh, You know, every judge has their own courtroom and their own rules, and they want their rules to be followed.
3: Uh, Yeah, so last week, the defense was asking for a mistrial over a certain line of questioning done by the prosecution. And what were the defense's issues with that line of questioning?
5: Sure. There's actually two incidents that prompted the motion for a mistrial. The first happened when uh, Kyle Rittenhouse was being cross-examined by Prosecutor Thomas Binger. And basically, Binger said, you know, you have never told your story before. Then suddenly today you're telling us this story, but you've stayed silent this whole time. The defense objected, and once the jury was sent out of the courtroom, the judge laid into him and said, you can't question someone's right to remain silent. It's their constitutional right. That was the first incident. Then, during cross-examination again, Binger started to bring up a prior incident of video of Rittenhouse that was taken a couple weeks before the shooting. And in a pre-trial hearing, the judge had ruled that that video and that evidence was not admissible at trial and should not be brought up at trial. But Binger was clearly walking right into it. Judge again sent the jury out of the courtroom and really laid into Binger for even going there. And they took a lunch break. After the lunch break, the defense said, we want to file a motion for a mistrial. A mistrial was prejudiced, meaning that Kyle Rittenhouse could could not refile charges.
3: Can a mistrial now that the jury is deliberating? Can a mistrial still be granted, or is that sort of has that ship kind of sailed?
5: The mistrial could still be granted. Judge has not ruled on the motion yet, and he could theoretically rule on that motion even after a verdict is returned.
3: And what would a mistrial mean for this case?
5: So if it's just a mistrial, it would mean that the prosecution has to refile charges and do this whole trial all over again. If it's a mistrial with prejudice, which is what the defense has asked for, then the state cannot refile charges. Everybody has attached
3: so this trial uh, began on the first of this month, if I'm not mistaken. So that means today is day 16 of the trial. And today is the day that the actual jury will decide the trial there, or at least begin to decide. How long do you think that the process of deliberation is going to last?
6: I,
5: You know, I would expect it to be lengthy. I don't think I would not expect to see a verdict today. Um, just purely because there's 36 pages of jury instructions alone. And the first question from the jury was, can we get more copies of those instructions? So they're reading these laws carefully. They're reading the charges carefully. And then they have the five main counts that they have to decide on. And then they have those potential lesser charges as well. So it's anyone's guess when the jury is going to return a verdict, if they can reach a verdict. But I would expect definitely not today.
3: So Governor Evers has authorized the National Guard troops to be deployed to Kenosha once a verdict is announced, uh, sort of anticipating a possible unrest. Could you sort of tell me about the scene outside of the courtroom?
5: I would say for the majority of this trial, it's been kind of the same handful of people, not not a big crowd. And to be honest, they kind of show up in the evening when the cameras turn on for evening live shots now that the jury has the case we're seeing a much bigger crowd and there's definitely supporters of kyle rittenhouse and anti-kyle rittenhouse people so it's a mix i would say it's still not a large group but they're vocal and there's a lot of back and forth between the two groups you know arguing their sides but it's certainly not a large crowd by any means
3: what is the atmosphere like outside of the courtroom there sort of the uh between these two groups
5: it's tense. You know, both sides are extremely passionate about their positions and there's a lot of yelling back and forth. They're not having constructive dialogue. So it's definitely tense.
3: Well, Kristen, I think that's all of the questions that I had for you. Thank you so much for coming on and talking with me today.
5: My pleasure. Thanks for having me.
1: You're listening to Handcrafted Local News here on WORT.
0: Stay with us. We've got a lot more stories for you coming up in the second half of the show. Cardinal Call shares the latest news from UW-Madison campus.
1: Wildlife Weekly prescribes what steps are essential to take when a wild animal bites you or a pet.
0: And Radio Astronomy explores a peculiar specimen seen in an ocean of galaxies.
1: But now we'll take a quick break and check in on some world headlines back in the flesh. Time is now 6:33 and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm Sarah Hopeful here with Christian Knutsen. Thanks for joining us. Every Tuesday we check in with the editorial staff over at the Daily Cardinal, one of UW Madison's student newspapers to learn the latest news from campus. This week Cardinal Call explains the COVID-19 vaccine requirement put in place for UW Madison employees.
7: Hello and welcome to the Cardinal Call, your weekly dose of news coming out of the UW-Madison campus from the Daily Cardinal Student Newspaper. I'm producer Hope Carnup, joined today by college news editor Sophia Vento and associate news editor Sam Henschel to talk about how vaccinations are going so far within the UW system and what's next. So first of all, Sophia, you reported on Thursday that UW-Madison is going to require all employees, including student employees, to be vaccinated by January 4th. So what went into making that decision?
8: Yeah, so the federal mandate was announced in September, and uh, the UW system and um, UW-Madison specifically hadn't really discussed it publicly until the last couple of weeks, Um, in late um, October, the, U- the UW system announced that they were going to comply, but sort of vaguely didn't really provide any details about that, what that would look like. And then um, last week with UW Madison's announcement specifically, um, in that they, as you said, are going to require all of employees across the board to be vaccinated, um, provided a little bit more clarity on that. Um, I mean, can't like Considering the campus broadly, 95% of employees are vaccinated. So I think it was just a matter of complying with this order, given that it could have effects on federal contracts and other you know, financial interests.
7: Yeah, so how many employees does UW estimate haven't provided that proof of vaccination yet?
8: Yeah, so um, UW spokesperson Meredith McClone, um said that they estimate that approximately 1,800 employees, which includes both graduate student and then like student hourly employees, have not provided proof of vaccination. Um, I mean, as I said previously, over 95 percent of employees are vaccinated, so obviously this is just getting that last percentage over the line of ensuring that everyone is vaccinated.
7: Yeah, so Sam, um, you checked in on the 70 for 70 campaign within the UW system. Can you talk a little bit about what that campaign is and how it's been going so far?
6: Yeah, definitely. So the 70 for 70 campaign that was announced by the UW system um, in July. And essentially it's a campaign to promote students getting their vaccines. So 12 UW campuses participated. And then at each campus that hit 70% fully vaccinated with their student body. Um, 70 students were entered for the chance to win a $7,000 scholarship. Um, And then student governments that assisted with the campaign were eligible to receive $5,000 in funding.
7: Yeah, so I think the only school that didn't hit that 70% mark yet is Platteville. How are they doing in comparison to the county rate? Were they better than the county overall still?
6: Yeah, UW-Platteville, they were just shy of hitting that rate. I think that they were in the mid-50s as of last week. Um, however, when you compare it to the surrounding like cities and the county as a whole, they are doing a lot better than the demographic group that they're comparing it to, so like the 18-24 to 24 demographic group. Um, so even though they didn't hit that goal yet, it still was pretty successful for them.
7: Yeah, so as we talked about before, UW's rate is currently at 95.2% for employees and 94.6% for students, and so the conversation on campus has kind of shifted toward booster shots now. How do you think like the COVID situation in general has changed since we arrived on campus in the fall?
6: I think it's really interesting because... It has gotten a lot better, but Dane County and Madison in general still has a pretty high rate of community transmission. Um, And that's when getting those booster shots is so important, especially because I think a lot of people our age, like in the 18 to 24 range, were eligible in April. Um, And if you jumped on that right away, it probably means that you're eligible for your booster shot now. Um, So I would encourage getting those booster shots because that community transmission rate is still pretty high. Um, And with the mask order ending on November 27th from Public Health Madison in Dane County, that's a really good way to prevent getting any infections.
7: Yeah, so the COVID dashboard for UW-Madison still shows that cases are pretty low, like the seven-day average for students has risen a little bit since October. I've noticed a lot of other sicknesses going around that aren't COVID that I think people might be getting tested
6: for thinking it might be COVID. Have you also kind of noticed that coming from friends or anyone else? I definitely have. I personally get at like terrible sinus infections when the seasons change and the weather has just been shifting a ton lately. So when I got my first pretty bad sinus infection, I was moderately convinced it was COVID and then it wasn't, which was good. Um, but I, I know a lot of my friends have also experienced the same thing where, you know, I had a friend the other week and he texted me in the middle of class and he was like, I'm getting tested for mono because he thought he had mono, but he actually had a sinus infection. So I think there's a lot of that going around as well.
8: Yeah, for sure. I have had pretty similar um, situations. I was re- I was really sick last month, and I think, given that there's clearly been some stuff going around, just you know, the general flu or you know, colds, but I think it's really interesting that people are getting tested when they're exhibit or showing symptoms of um, that are related to COVID, which I think is a good sign that. The campus community seems to be committed to, you know, keeping each other safe, getting tested, you know, keep wearing those masks and all that good stuff.
7: All right. Thanks so much for coming on our show. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. In other campus news. UW System branch campuses are facing a decrease in enrollment, the Wisconsin State Journal first reported. Enrollment has dropped from about 9,700 students across the UW System campuses in fall 2018 to about 5,700 in fall 2021. In comparison, UW-Madison's enrollment has increased about 35.2 percent since the 2018 merger. Since then, the flagship campus has welcomed two record-breaking classes, including the largest ever freshman class in 2021. State leaders have pointed to the COVID-19 pandemic as a large reason for drops in enrollment. A new report listed UW-Madison as number four among all U.S. universities for study abroad participation and number 19 for international students. In 2020, UW-Madison was listed as 15th for study abroad after the number of students studying abroad fell in the 2019-2020 academic year, due to the pandemic. Over 7,000 international students are enrolled at UW-Madison this year, a drop of less than 100 students from last year. The Associated Students of Madison introduced a new piece of legislation to form an anti-violence committee and an anti-violence coordinator. Legislation sponsors cited in the bill that there have been no significant changes in lowering the rate of sexual violence on campus between 2015 and 2019. The legislation is also sponsored by PAVE, an organization that works to prevent sexual assault, dating violence, and stalking. ASM said that most advocacy around this issue falls to organizations like PAVE. The committee would work alongside PAVE and other organizations like Sex Out Loud and Culture of Respect. (laughs) That's all for our Cardinal Call this week. We'll catch you back here soon. Check out more news and stories at dailycardinal.com or download our app. You can also find links to our podcasts on our website. This has been the Cardinal Call, created by student journalists at UW-Madison.
0: Yowch! Animal bites are no joke. On this week's edition of Wildlife Weekly, contributor Jackie Sandberg describes what happens when an animal bites you or your pet, and then what to do about it.
9: Welcome! Welcome to Wildlife Weekly. My name is Jackie Sandberg, and I'm the Wildlife Training Supervisor for the Dane County Humane Society here in Madison, Wisconsin. Each week, we choose a topic related to wildlife rehabilitation or the environment. And today, we'll be talking about animal bites. Now, animal bites happen so frequently in our field, we really need to know how to work with them as rehabilitators. A lot of times this comes with help from our veterinary staff or our certified vet techs, uh, but also those of us that are here and licensed know how to provide that basic triage and that care for an animal that might be injured and in need. So what kind of animal bites do we see most commonly? Well, it's definitely going to be your common dogs and cats that are in your backyards, and they're the ones that generally affect wildlife most often in our field. Um, actually, a uh, really cool tidbit of information. Did you know that back in 2017, there was actually a study done? Um, and it was a study that was uh, data sharing related from a database called WildOne. Now, we use WildOne. It's a, a database that was developed out of the Wildlife Center of Virginia. And there's many wildlife centers around the U.S. and nationally that actually use this program to enter all of the admission information about a patient, Uh, their medical history, everything that we can look at. And then that way, we can run reports on the data. So in 2017, and I know this is a little while ago, but actually 82 different wildlife centers were uh, reviewed in North America, and it was over a three and a half year period to try to figure out, okay, what are the most common causes for admission for wildlife? And what is the disposition? Well, domestic pets, the dogs and cats, were actually about 14 percent of all admissions overall, and it was the second most common identifiable cause of a wildlife injury. That's saying a lot. I mean, that's a large chunk of admission. And if you think about thousands of animals that are coming through, dog and cat bites are really high up there. Most of the time it ended up being birds that were affected, uh, less than, you know, your turtles, reptiles, amphibians, um, and even mammals. Although that is definitely higher, I would say, in our area, we tend to see a lot of baby bunnies or squirrels or other animals that are attacked um, that are mammalian. Um, and so the results of that study, very interesting. You know, 78% of those did not survive in rehab. And the reason for that is because, you know, out of so many different species, and this study was, uh, 290 different species represented, um, sometimes that dog and cat bite has already then progressed so far that by the time it comes to a rehabilitator, it's already infected. Um, and we have differences between dogs and cats and what's in their mouths and what kind of uh, bacteria are present. But you know, cat bites make that really deep puncture. Um, it's sometimes very small. It's hard to clean. And just the way that the wound ends up being uh, through the skin means that the bacteria and other things get trapped underneath pretty far down. Um, and so, unfortunately, that can cause more bacterial growth, not only from the bite itself or the cat's saliva, but also from like the type of bacteria on the skin. So, um, even a person, if you were to get bit by a cat, then you've got the bacteria on your own skin that then goes through with the puncture. Um, And if it's not cleaned out really well, then again, you could you know, become, you know, susceptible to an infection, but also sepsis, which is the whole body infection. It's like the body's way of um, kind of shutting down to try to defend itself against some really nasty bacteria. Um, And if you go into septic shock, then we're talking about failure of multiple organ systems. And that that's like the worst case scenario. Um, But imagine, you know, that's similar to our other wildlife species. Um, So and I'm I'm picking on cats here just a little bit because of the past. Bacteria in their mouths. Um, But that doesn't mean that dogs don't also do this. And that's actually a very large number of um, cases as well. Um, And together, just to give a little information, dog and cat bites are about 1% of all human emergency room visits every year. And cats are usually about 3 to 15% of those cases. So, you know, they're also biting people. It's not just their pets. Um, But it is definitely dangerous in case there's a pathogen that could be zoonotic. And generally, the the infection rate of cat bites is anywhere from 20 to 80 percent, depending on how deep that cat bite can go. Um, And so, you know, you could have nerve damage, you could have damage to tendons, um, you know, there could be. Uh, fragments that get stuck in the wound. Um, you know, there's going to be scarring, that kind of stuff that happens. Um, and so what we do as rehabilitators is try to uh, try to figure out what kind of um, wound it is. Is it a puncture? Is it a laceration? Is it an avulsion? Um, you know, did the skin tear in addition to being punctured by the teeth? And then how do we clean it out? Well, you know, we want to make sure that we have a sterile flush. Uh, we want to make sure to get all as much of the bacteria and the... Um, the solid debris out and away from the wounds. We might have to shave the area to make sure that we can really get as close to those as possible and um, make sure that the extra fur isn't getting back into the wound. Um, In the case of mammals, for example, for birds, you might have to pluck feathers around the wound. Um, And we have to keep that wound open for drainage because you know those little punctures can scab over really quickly. So yeah, you might flush it out with some, for example, sterile saline, and then we follow it up with some sort of uh, antiseptic So if we're talking like a chlorhexidine or an iodine, something like that, and make sure that we flush in and around and out of the wounds, but, you know, making sure we're doing it in a way that is, you know, there's a specialization to it taught to folks in the veterinary fields. Um, And then usually some sort of topical medication that's going to prevent bacteria from growing. So a lot of times we might use some sort of cream or um, gel that has a silver compound in it, which would keep bacteria from growing. Some folks use honey. Honey naturally has those properties. That's pretty cool. And that's used a lot of times for uh, wounds that have tissue that needs to regranulate over the area that has been damaged. Um, Lots of different ways. Uh, Don't try any of this yourself. It does take a license and obviously a lot of medical knowledge to do this, but we always have to try to choose the right method based on what the animal's presenting with. Um, Antibiotics are always important, which is why you should always bring an injured wild animal to a rehabilitator because most folks and shouldn't and aren't going to have antibiotics or pain medications or anything in stock at their homes. Um, and you wouldn't know how to dose those animals either. They're they're very different than dogs and cats. So just another quick, you know, pull to say, hey, you know, make sure you get it to somebody who knows what they're doing with animals and that they have a medical background and that they have a license for administering and prescribing drugs. So that's super important and also illegal otherwise. Um, so that's a, that's a big part of it. Um, And then last, we have to make sure that the the wounds heal over correctly, that infection hasn't set in beneath the skin where the punctures are, and also that the fur around the area grows back or the feathers, for example. So uh, that's a lot to go through for an animal. um, On top of Time and care, making sure they're not as stressed as possible while they're in captivity, recovering from punctures. Uh, It could take weeks, it could take months. Um, And just knowing that they go back out into those probably urban settings where they're then at risk again to dog and cat bites. So, um, you know, think about that the next time you're letting your dog or your cat out. um, You know, we understand, uh, I even have dogs fenced in yard. I've had those types of interactions before. It's tough when you've got a a pooch who really likes to chase things um, or a cat who, you know, just really wants to go outside. Um, we want to try to um, do the best that we can to prevent that if possible, whether that ends up being that you're with the, the dog or cat at all times or uh, doing your fenced-in yards or taking to the dog park or keeping them on leash and lead or just keeping them indoors. So thanks for listening. Uh, lots of good information here, hopefully, about dog and cat bites in relation to wildlife. And uh, if you ever have questions about this or you know an animal that's been injured by your pet, uh, give us a call at 608 608- 608 2873235 287- and this has been wildlife weekly
1: It's now 6.50 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT.
0: While jellyfish and space don't look to have a lot in common, Melissa Morris of Radio Astronomy shows us that there's more similarities than we realize with jellyfish galaxies.
10: What's one thing that space and the ocean have in common? Jellyfish. Well, kind of. Welcome to Radio Astronomy, folks. My name is Melissa Morris, and today we're going to talk about a special kind of galaxy named after one of the ocean's most bizarre creatures, the jellyfish. In our universe, there are billions of galaxies, all of which have their own unique characteristics and different sets of circumstances that make them the way they are. Most galaxies we observe, generally fit into two main categories, galaxies like our Milky Way that are flat disc-shaped spiral galaxies, and other galaxies that are huge red and puffy elliptical galaxies. What causes these to look the way they do depends on a huge number of factors, such as how they initially formed, how massive they are, how quickly they are forming stars, and where they are in the universe. While there are numerous factors that influence how galaxies change and evolve over time, today we're going to focus on how a galaxy can interact with its environment, which can result in drastic changes to the galaxy itself. You see, when astronomers map out where in the universe galaxies are located, this map doesn't look like some random smattering of locations. Instead, it resembles something that looks more like a spider's web with some galaxies being located along strands of the web, and when those strands intersect with others, they are in crowded environments known as galaxy clusters, which can contain anywhere from hundreds to thousands of galaxies. There are also large voids of space between these web strands in which few galaxies exist, and those that do are very isolated. This structure is known by astronomers as the cosmic web. A galaxy's evolution is dramatically affected by where it lies with respect to the cosmic web and with respect to other galaxies. In the strands of the cosmic web or in voids of space, galaxies tend to be more likely to be forming stars at a steady rate, while galaxies that exist in environments where they are surrounded by many other galaxies are more likely to have stopped forming stars altogether. The reason for this dichotomy in the way that galaxies look based on where they are is still a topic of much research. So what could be responsible for this? Well, it turns that galaxies aren't the only thing that exist in the cosmic web. There is also a great deal of gas known as the intergalactic medium that surrounds these galaxies. Much like how it's difficult for us to directly see the air that we breathe, it's also difficult for astronomers to directly observe this gas. However, we can see that it has an effect on some galaxies, particularly those in clusters, where the gas is at its hottest and most dense. You see, under the right conditions, this gas has the capacity of interacting with the much cooler gas inside of galaxies that's responsible for forming stars. As a star-forming galaxy falls into a hot, dense cluster environment, the hot cluster gas will exert pressure on the star-forming fuel within the galaxy, pushing it out of the galaxy entirely. This process is something called ram pressure stripping because the galaxy's star forming fuel is literally being rammed out by the hot cluster gas. If a galaxy loses its star forming fuel, it will be forced to stop forming stars and will begin to look a lot more like other galaxies and clusters. Few galaxies that are going through this process have actually been observed, but when they are, they take on a very distinct look, that of a jellyfish. When the star-forming gas is being pushed out of the galaxy, it's stretched out away from the galaxy into long filaments that look like the tentacles of a jellyfish, while the galaxy itself looks like the jellyfish's bell. Jellyfish galaxies are exciting to observe because they are actively going through a very dramatic version of ram pressure stripping and can tell us a great deal about the galaxy's environment. One way to really understand these kinds of unique galaxies is by using cosmological simulations. These are simulations that start with a set of conditions informed by our observations of the universe and are set running, subject to nothing but the physics implemented by the code. In these simulations, it's easy to see the structure of the cosmic web and to see the wide variety of interactions galaxies can have with one another and with their environment. One of the largest and most widely used cosmological simulations at the moment is called Illustrious TNG, which stands for the next generation. This simulation shows millions of galaxies evolving over the lifetime of the universe in a wide variety of environments. This means that we could very likely see some jellyfish galaxies in the process of losing their fuel for star formation. A team of astronomers has set up a citizen science project in which you and anybody else you know can go online and help them by searching through images of all kinds of galaxies in the illustrious TNG simulation in search of a population of jellyfish galaxies. Finding these kinds of galaxies isn't something that can be easily automated or done by one or two people, which is exactly why these astronomers have chosen to ask for the help of anybody and everybody that's interested. With your help, they will be able to find a sample of jellyfish galaxies that can further our understanding of how galaxies evolve in different kinds of environments. You can help them by going to zooniverse.org and looking for the Cosmological Jellyfish Project and start searching for jellyfish galaxies today. Additionally, don't forget that star parties at the Washburn Observatory right here on UW's campus are back in full swing. The next star party will be this Wednesday, so tomorrow, at 7 p.m., weather permitting. Stop by to chat about how neat jellyfish galaxies are and stare at objects in their night sky. That's all for Radio Astronomy This Week, folks. This is Melissa Morris, and I am wishing you a stellar week.
1: And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WRT's Live Local News at 6.
0: Special thanks to feature contributors Jackie Sandberg, the Radio Astronomy crew, and the editorial staff at the Daily Cardinal.
1: Dave Lawrenson engineered the show.
0: Nate helped produced this newscast.
1: And Sholly Pittman is the news director at WRT. I'm your host, Sarah Hopeful. Stay up to date with the WRT Local News Podcast. Subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts.
0: And I'm your host, Christian Knudsen. Up next is Spanish language news with Nuestro Patio. Good night.